Welcome, everybody. Glad that you're here. My name is Maggie. I'm on staff here at the table. All the way, Graham. There you go. Um, we're glad that you're here tonight. Thanks so much for joining us. I have a couple things that um, I want to let you know about. The first is kind of a reminder and an introduction of who's standing here to my left. Um, we have Arielle Grant with us tonight, and you will remember that Arielle Grant leads an organization called Render Free, and they were the recipients of our um, Christmas offering this year. And so we've invited Arielle to come and be with us tonight. So Arielle, the question I want to put to you to give to all of us is tell us about the updates with the new project, the, the New Haven project project with Render Free. Thank you so much. Hi everyone, thank you so much for having me and thank you earnestly for the gift that, that Render Free has received from all of you. It is an incredible testimony to how the church can step up for black and brown women. Um, for those of you who don't know or are like, I don't, I don't remember this girl. <laughs> I am the founder and CEO of Render Free. We are a workspace and wellness club for self-identified black and brown women. That's kind of our tagline, but really we're a safe place, um, a safe place for the women who often are pillars in the community across the Twin Cities and of course across the globe. Um, the women that I have the privilege of serving show up for their churches, for their families, for their neighborhoods. And so Render Free is meant to be a space that shows up for them, where they can bring their whole selves and maybe for the first time in a long time, take off that armor that we often have to wear out when we're out in the world and consider what they need to take care, what they need for healing, what they need for rest, and then find that in community among us. And so I launched Render Free three years ago. Um, yes, your math is right, that's in 2020, believe it or not. And there were definitely moments that year where I questioned, like, what am I doing? This is a huge undertaking. But also where I felt um, convicted to continue to walk in faith because the mountain of the problem was large, but I was being invited to kind of be a part of the solution. And it was clear that the need was great. And so we started for two years popping up in a space that many of you are familiar with um, at the Center of Belonging. I was actually on staff with Ace in the City when I founded Render Free, supported by Tim and Matt Anderson, still to this day. Um, and we recently transitioned from that location where we were two days a week, and now just this past, like a month from almost today, February, we launched in our new space where we're now five days a week. So super excited to extend the offerings of Render Free to more black and brown women across the Twin Cities, and so grateful for all of you for how you've already stepped up in supporting us in that work. Yes. So, yes, we wanted to make sure that you got that update that they are officially launched. The work continues. We're just so proud of you, Arielle. Keep it up. Thank you for being part of our community. Um, speaking of the Center of Belonging, we're actually going to be there next week. So next week, Sunday, March 12th, is one of those Bethlehem music nights. And normally we do like um, uh, online worship on those evenings, but we're going to try something new. We're going to have a community night. We'll have the pizza. If you come and show up, we'll do trivia together, um, some family-friendly activities. It'll be a great time. So we invite you to join us. Um, same time, just at a different place. The address is here, but all the info you need is on our website. And then... What else do we have? Oh yes, we have a service project here in the month of March. You know that we have partnered with Stonebridge ever since we've been here in the neighborhood. They're right down the street on Lindale. Um, they serve a population of students um, that often, the majority of their students experience food insecurity and 15% of their students are homeless. And so we have spring break coming up at the end of this month and those kids um, would benefit from some food bags to go home with them. And so um, our team and the team over at Stonebridge 
Heritage have put together um, kind of a list of the kinds of snacks that would be helpful. We have made a fund. So if you're like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to Costco this week, that's okay. You can scan that QR code right there, go out to our digital bulletin, take a look. It will be, um, the fund is called Stonebridge Food Bank Fund, I think. And you can donate to that fund and then we'll do the shopping. But if you would like to do some hands-on work, you can also help pack bags. And great news, kids, you can be part of this. You can help pack the bags as well. So if you'd like to, we've got two dates. Um, that March 29th is a Wednesday night, and then the 30th is the distribution of the bags. Um, that's a Thursday during the day. So if anyone wants to come help me finish packing the bags on Thursday, I'd love to see you. So that's that. Um, go ahead, scan that QR code, and you can give to that. And same QR code right here. So we sped through these announcements because we're trying this digital bulletin thing. So go out there. You can get all the links for who to text and how to give and sermon resources. Speaking of sermons, Matt, will you come up here and give us the good word? I would be. Did I forget? Uh, oh, dismiss the kids. <gasps> Forgot. I'm sorry. Sure. My kids are looking right at me. Third to fifth, do you want to follow Jay right out the back? Thanks for being here with us tonight. Sorry, I forgot to let you go. <laughs> Have a good night, guys. Thanks, Meg. You know, those, there are those moments with Ariel Grant right there, Maggie kind of sharing some of the, the glimpse into what is going down in this community that you recognize, like, it, this Sunday night thing with the pep talk, with the deeper dive into scripture where we can come and see each other face to face, it matters. The community meal last week, it really matters. But those spaces where we can roll up our sleeves, where we can sacrificially live and love into the neighbors of our lives, like that's what, that's where, um, Maggie, what's the phrase? The, something hits the road. Where the rubber hits the road. Hey, if you're our first time here at the table, my name is Matt Morgan, one of the leaders here, one of the pastors here in this community. We're grateful for you being with us. Uh, this is the part of the program where we go into some kind of sermonic deep dive. We do a look at the scripture. We're in a series right now called The Last Days of Jesus. We are slowly walking through the last week that Christ lived. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then finally Easter Sunday. We're trying to slow walk our way through there before we get there though. One of the things that we say every time we gather in this space. One of the things that we say to remind you every time we gather in this space is that who you are is more important than what you do. I know from a conversation with enough of you, even already tonight, that Monday morning's already on your mind. So let me say it a little bit louder. Turn my volume up a little bit. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. That's one of the common myths in today's society is that your production, your output, what you do for a living, how you fill that bank account of yours, that determines your value, BS. It's a lie. It's a myth. It's unhealthy. It's not good. It's not of God. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention to who you are. So we gather in this space every Sunday night to remind one another that you are made in the image of God and we will dignify you as such. We will see you as such. We will love you as such. We will be loved by you as such. I was gone the past few days. Um, Patty, I told you I would do the slides. Let me get my phone real quick. We were in Hilton Head, South Carolina. It was balmy. It was 60, 70 degrees. I had no complaints. Honestly, when you come from the frozen tundra that we live in, like I have no complaints. That said, Mark Harmon, it's not like super easy traveling with... Kids are all gone, right? Kids. It's just not. 
I read one tweet to my wife the other day that said, uh, traveling with kids is ideal for people who love to travel but are allergic to fun. And that's, um, like, honestly, if you get to the airport, I, I am very well aware and convinced. I get why every time we show up there, there are parents with kids there that have been there for, like, three hours, four hours before the flight. You need to bank into your time enough space for the kids to drive you crazy. So by the time you get on the plane, you're okay if the plane crashes. Like, you're relatively, you've come to peace with it. Put me out of my misery. I, I totally understand that. That was our experience. With that said... <laughs> By the time we got to South Carolina, it was all up and to the right. Matter of fact, I had some time with my filly, my father-in-law, Mike Moore, and we did a little golfing. I want to show you this photo. Honestly, if I'm, my form is uh, reminiscent of Scotty Scheffler, Tiger Woods, somewhere between the two, right, Mark? <laughs> Something like that. We went out two, Lauren, was it only two times? I know you are very well aware of how many times I left the family to go golfing. <laughs> was it two times? It was only two times. I practiced restraint. We went on these golf courses in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and we had the time of our lives. And as you can see there, the form is perfect. The reason why I'm showing you that, though, is not because I struck green on this simple par three, which I went straight to the left immediately off the tee shot, but because of the following photo. Patty, please. You didn't catch that. And honestly, the blurry nature of it, you still can't catch it. That is a 15-foot gator behind me right there that is, is bringing out the ketchup from deep in his pockets, about to pour it on me and make himself a nice little lunch right there. Had no idea. There's a 15-foot gator right behind me. You see that photo and you're just so awestruck, your jaw's on the ground about like, how could one human being have a form so perfect that you didn't even catch the Lyle the Crocodile behind me? But that is actually happening right there. Here's the sermonic bridge I'm trying to construct right now is that in this series where we are talking about the last days of Jesus, what we are trying to do is remove Christ from the stained glass windows and bring him back to earth flesh and blood, our brother in his final days. And we're trying to identify, we all have these different images of Jesus, right? Johnny Cash, your own, come on, somebody personal. Is it deep, Depeche Mode, that ministry? Doesn't matter, I guess. I'm the only one who thought that. Nobody joined that. Make you see that? Learn from that. But we all have these images of Jesus, the highlight reel, uh, when we think about Jesus in the holiest of weeks, the Passover week, his last seven days prior to his death on his cross, we all have these moments that come to mind, but we rarely stop and really look at said moments. We really stop and really take note of the gators, if you will, that are lurking in the background. The context, the society that Christ was raised in, formed by, responding to, and our hope in this series, when we break it down day by day, even when we expedite and we do Palm Sunday last Sunday, our hope is that we can actually go 24 hours by 24 hours so we can take note of this matters. You know, a lot of us, we were born inside different evangelical churches. And I know that's not all of us, but a lot of us that is true. Where we were told that Jesus Christ was the child who was born at Christmas for the purpose of dying at Easter. And I understand that pull. I understand that claim. But what that does is it tells us that the time in between, from birth to 33-year-old Jewish man Jesus, that time did not matter that much. 
because this was the child who was born to die. We are saying no. From the very start of our community, we have said the life that Jesus lived. If he was strictly here to, to be born to die, why not take him at age one? Age two, age three. Month one, month two. But instead you have the prince of peace, the embodiment of pure love. Walk amongst us. The word of flesh that dwells in the neighborhood walk amongst us and live out a full life with priorities fully on display, with invitations fully being extended, with things of conviction no longer being ambiguous but fully clarified once and for all. You have a full life here that is fully on display. And far be it for us to bypass that for just a few different moments in his life. But I recognize that that can be hard for us to reconcile. Because again, at the risk of being redundant, a lot of us did grow up with this is a child who was born to die. You know, I learned early on, I was telling Lauren, my wife, earlier today about um, one of the first things I had to learn as a pastor was there is a gap between, um, well, there's a gap between this. Because there's like people love and people will like pat your back and tap you on the head. That's not a thing as much anymore. It was when it first got started. They love when you start to talk about Jesus. They walk out of the room when you talk about what Jesus talks about. You know what I'm saying? And so you have Jesus. If you can tell them a story about how Jesus healed the sick, healed the lepers, and cured the dead of death. And they love that. But the moment that you construct a bridge and tie it to our current modern-day healthcare system, in leaving those who are vulnerable on the outskirts of society with no protection and no care for them, I'm gone. You pushed it a little too far. They love how Jesus was always calling people, like the Good Samaritan story. The Good Samaritan in and of itself was a provocative term at that time. Calling an outsider, one who was considered to be a dog in that society as a good person, somebody capable of producing good fruits, somebody capable of being a human being like the rest. The moment you say that, they love. But the moment you tie it to an immigrant crossing the border or an activist from Black Lives Matter, you're being a little political, problematic. People love when you talk about Jesus. A little less crazy when you talk about what Jesus talked about. Honestly, when I think about the Holy Week, the week we are kind of slowly crawling our way towards inch by inch, no place is that more punctuated and clarified than when we talk about the end of the Son of Love's life. When we talk about what Jesus died for. Which is something we've done for a long time now. I grew up in a tradition, many of you grew up in a tradition where we emphasize what Jesus died for. And we should. We should have like robust conversations. What did Jesus die for? Salvation, forgiveness of sins, a new possibility for tomorrow. All these things. Good, grateful, love it. All good, all warranted, all important. But we should also talk. When we talk about what Jesus died for, we should also talk about what he was killed for. Because the one is not the same as the other. What Jesus died for and what Jesus was killed for are two very different things. And it didn't have to be that way. You know, it's interesting. When you read the Gospels, there is something that becomes explicitly clear. And yet, I will tell you that until I got into seminary, I didn't catch it. 
until one of my professors said to me, have you all ever noticed that when Jesus was out in the boondocks, when he's out in the sticks and he's, uh, you know, walking on water, nobody's like calling in the Roman guards to do something about this mess. Like nobody's like sounding the alarm. Shut this down. When he's turning barrels of water into bottles of pure wine, nobody's like, this needs to stop. Nobody does that. When he, when he heals people of deep sickness, of leprosy, again, of death, nobody is sending in somebody to shut this man down. It isn't until he steps inside the city on Palm Sunday, which Debbie cited last week, and he causes a mess to the bottom line of those in power. It isn't until Jesus becomes a social, spiritual, economic, political threat to the powers that be that they say, this guy, he's got to go. Everyone was fine with Dr. King when he was working with his own community. But the moment he started speaking out about capitalism, how white supremacy has seeped into all forms of political um, governance, that the FBI deemed him as the most dangerous American, uh, yeah, sorry, most dangerous American. That's it. Think about these things. Jesus did not die because he, you know, grew old and experienced entropy. He didn't age himself out of hospice care. He wasn't killed by a drunk driver on a horse. He died because he was a political, spiritual, economic threat to the powers that be. And I think about that all the time when we gather on Sundays because why aren't we that way? I mean, if fidelity to Christ is a threat to the economic powers that be, especially for us here, if you call Minnesota your home where it is the largest the gap between the income inequality is the second largest in the nation. What is it with the Minnesota churches that haven't made enough noise about said gap? This man was killed for it. All the lenses through which we see Jesus in the stained glass windows, when I say we're trying to bring him down from the stained glass windows where he can be idolized and worshipped from afar, but never actually embodied with the invitation he extended. The reason why I'm saying that is because it's not something, when we think about life as, a, as, a, uh, as worshipers, you know, a lot of us think it's like, all right, Sunday night, 5 p.m., I'm going to sing. When Lauren hits those notes, I'm with her. Come on, let's hit those songs. That's life is worship. Paul talked about it as a life of sacrifice. It says you are, you are grounded and rooted in conviction. You take seriously your call. When you follow the son of love, who is convinced by this idea that I am to live for the power of love, even if it's inside of a world of loveless power, I'm going to move forward in a way that says no to the things I need to say no to and yes to the things I need to say yes to. But my convictions will guide me through the mess. Is the same, could the same thing be said about each and every one of us? For me, Sometimes, I mean, I'm not on a high horse here telling you, like, <laughs> I, I haven't at all. But I want to. 
And there's no place that's more crystallized between Christ's convictions of truth and the lies that broker the world of, of an unreality than Monday afternoon. Jesus wakes up. He's with his fellows, and they head immediately straight to the church. They are fresh off of the parade that, that, that happened the day before, where the palms of the poor were laid down. It's like this mockery of sorts of militaristic might that is happening on the south side of the city. Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He knows what's trans... A lot of people think he's like surprised, and so he's having like some impulsive reaction to what's unfolding in the, te in the temple. Not the case at all. He knows what's happening. This is Passover. We're in Jerusalem. We're at the heart of the empire, the center of power, where everything unfolds. He knows that there will be people who will be selling things and profiting off the plight of the poor in that space. And yet he shows up all the same. And read the text as Mark writes it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So we were telling these pirate stories here in South Carolina this past week because I guess it's a hot spot. I might have made it up to keep my kids' attention. It's what you do as a dad. Don't judge me. But one of the things I was trying to tell my eldest in particular was, like, really try to, like, see the scene. Imagine, you know, meek and mild, street name, Prince of Peace, Jesus walking into a temple, packed out church sermon. 2.7 million people at that time going into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, filling the temple courts. Imagine Jesus, this preacher, some say prophet, some say even more, from the sticks coming in to the city. And he sees a table where he doesn't like what's happening. And he says, you're gone. Read this next line. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Think that through. Maggie, I see you walking there with like your H&M bag or something of that sort. I don't know what they're selling at like the temple courts. But Jesus is like, you're done. I mean, actually think through the practical implications of if Jesus, if it says Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise what does that actually look like? It's left to the imagination. But there's something so girded, there's something so rooted in Jesus' own conviction where he says, enough is enough. I'm not going to play this game anymore. Why is that so? Keep reading. Jesus would not, as he taught them, he said, now question. A moment ago, we just read, you and I both, that he was driving people out. How are you driving people out? and teaching them simultaneously. What isn't being said inside of the text that's being read? Because either you're being driven out the exits, whip in hand Jesus, as other gospels will say. They said he was packing heat. Heat that he himself brandished at home. How are you being driven out and taught at the same time? The only way to go from A to B and wrap your mind fully around the situation is unless some people heard what he had to say. Some people understood the grounds on which he was standing and said, I want in on that. It's a compelling message, even if it cost me something to stand with him. As he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is unfolding in this moment? 
Let me just turn off my notes because I'm way off now, George. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> okay. Jesus comes on this scene. It's Passover week. We have 2.7 million Israelites at his time who are coming into the city to celebrate this monumental moment on the calendar. What is the moment celebrating? In the heart of an oppressive system where there's a triple taxation happening, you got to give a tax to the Romans, you got to give a tax to the priests who are running the temple, and you have to give your tithes to the temple. So the poor are always kept poor. There is a firm boot that is being pressed upon everybody's necks, and yet everybody shows up. 2.7 million people in the land were, it's been said, have filled the city of Jerusalem for this monumental event. What are they celebrating at Passover? What were they celebrating? What are modern-day Jewish folks celebrating at Passover? A politically explosive story. It is the one time on the year where you are remembering that there was a moment where our ancestors were also like forced to walk with shackles on their feet, told that this is all you will be, building bricks day in, day out, left to poverty, left in pain, and yet God heard their cries. What did God do? Passover is a celebration of God hearing from the people in pain, intervening on their behalf, walking amongst them, moving them from the place of slavery to the split open sea where he walked them across safely. Not only that, actually, he tells, God says, grab some of the empire's cash that they took from you from all these years and fill it in your pockets before you go. And then walk. As they walk, the waves behind their wake closes in on the Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies that are chasing them straight on. So think about this. In Jesus' time, it is no longer the Pharaoh, but there is certainly a Caesar. It's no longer brick building, but there is a triple taxation that leaves them chained up in a different kind of slavery. So you have Egypt hosting an Exodus party. You have the center of poverty celebrating freedom while administering slavery. It's a, it's a politically explosive moment. That's why year in and year out, prior to even Jesus stepping onto the scene and tearing things up at the temple, there have always been protests. There have always been people killed. There have always been this impulse to say, it should not be this way. Jesus is the full embodiment of this should not be how it is. All these people moving through, and this is business as usual. Jesus says, no, this is satanic. It's twisted. You are profiting off the plights of the poor and you're acting as if it's business as usual. When will you change? And in the midst of him turning over tables, grabbing his whip that he brandished from home and yelling all kinds of things, I think the gospel writers are like, let's just not write that part down. They do cite him with this at least and they say, he said at one point, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, a citation to the prophet, but you have made it a den of robbers. The Greek there is spelion. It's this idea of like in this safe space, all the thieves can go free. You can pick people's pockets here. You can cheat people wrong here. We got your back. We'll cover your corners. You can get away with it here. One of the most twisted things about this Monday afternoon as we walk slowly through the last days of Jesus is many of our biblical titles that hang over the head of this story is says Jesus cleansing the, table, the temple, which would imply that the temple has been cleansed. 
Raise your hand if when you look around at the church today, if you think like, hey, nothing to change here. We're good. Every dirty corner, every wrinkle, every problematic thing that might possibly happen, all of that is gone. We're in a good place. Raise your hand if you think that is true. Was the temple perfectly cleansed? Or was Jesus offering an extension of an invitation to all of us who were to take up where he left off? You have made this house supposed to be a house of prayer. People came into your house looking for you to put something good in them. But they walked out with you taking something from them. Make it make sense. 33 acres of land is the temple. Jesus shuts it all down. You know how many doors are on 33 acres? A lot of doors. Couldn't tell you the number. But there's something inside of the text that is not written explicitly that tells me that he compels enough people to join him in his ranks to go like, yeah, finally, somebody said something. I am so tired of being poor and coming to the temple for good news only to be further impoverished. I am so tired of coming here empty, expecting something full, only to be further emptied. When will change actually happen? Now, we could go a deeper dive here. Maybe I should at some point. We can do a, you know, Wednesday Zoom if you want. We can go into the text and, and break it all down. But I don't care about that as much, to be honest with you, as I do with us. Where we're not going to re-put Jesus in the stained glass windows and remove him from the flesh and blood on the ground and say, what a moment, eh? What a moment for Jesus to do that prophetic act. What does it look like for the church today in these moments? To be less about the bark and more about the bite. To not just passively go with the systems at hand as they exploit the poor, those in pain, those in the margins. What does it look like to say no? What does it look like to be like Jesus and turn over tables and accept that like everybody in here might think I'm a weirdo? I was telling Lauren today, I said, honestly, I think the biggest thing that is holding Christians back from being the full-blown church as Jesus envisioned it is this fear of, like, the sidelong glance, the condescending smirk, the, the sense of, like, I'm no longer normal. I no longer fit in. I no longer am, like, one of the people. There is, if you read the gospel story, I'll say this, Romans 12 too. When Paul talks about like the imperative on Christians, on church, if you want to be a Christian, you got to be okay with being a peculiar kind of people, which means that you're not going to ever be normal. Come to terms with that as soon as possible. Be okay with being weird. Be okay with saying no to everything else that everybody else is saying yes to. What does it look like for you to set yourself apart for the rest, for the sake of others outside of the immediate purview of you? There's this famous, um, uh, Lauren, was he a psychologist, psychiatrist, one of the two? I can't always deal with it. Albert Ellis is his name. But he worked with clients in particular who were dealing with the social shame or the fear of it. And it was paralyzing them into this place of normality, keeping them from fully living into their own calling. And he had them do this thing where he would ask them to go to a mall, take a string, tie it to a banana, and walk it the whole way through. Crazy. Doesn't make sense. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be that, that lady right there. 
And yet that is one of the most profound spiritual acts I've ever seen. Because to be a peculiar kind of people that do not conform to the patterns of this world is to say, like, I know it's weird. I know I don't fit inside of the normal categories that you put upon us, but I'm doing me. And for me to do me, I need to live in Christ. And Christ lived this way, and it was weird, and it is what it is. But I will not, I will not settle on lesser terms. When Martin Luther King Jr., at the end of his life, inspired by the life of Christ, he talks about the need for people to recognize that, like, yes, there's a healthy period in our lives where we need to be adjusted to the normal society. How you grow as an individual, how you grow in relationships. But at some point, you have to recognize that the Pharaoh of old that you're singing about at Passover looks awfully similar to the Caesar today. And I cannot eat Caesar's food on the first floor of Caesar's house and actually expect me to say something against him. There has to be a change. Christians are called to be a peculiar kind of people. I want you to hear King's words, and we'll close it out. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology. It is the word maladjusted. It is the ringing cry of modern child psychology, maladjusted. Now, of course, we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. As I move toward my conclusion, I would like to say to you today, in a very honest manner, that there are some things in our society and some things in our world for which I'm proud to be maladjusted. And I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted to these things until the good society is realized. I must honestly say to you that I never intend to adjust myself to racial segregation and discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few and leave millions of God's children smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. You know, there is a call on each and every one of us. And you hear about that Monday afternoon when Jesus went down and he shut it all down. How are we blending in? And what are we called to be? And what do we do with the gap in between? Pray with me. Christ, we are called to be a peculiar kind of people. We recognize that, Lord. Where there is exploitation where there are tables of inequity, let us not pull up a chair and just go with the status quo. Help us, God, who have the courage and conviction to say no, to cause a ruckus if it calls for it, to not just go with and be properly adjusted society as it stands, but to actually be maladjusted creatively and say there's a better way and I'm not going to sacrifice that better way for the sake of everybody else's palatability. Give us a backbone, God. Christ, we pray all these things in your name and your name alone. Amen. Thanks. Uh, from what you said, Matt, 
The first being that there comes a point where we say it doesn't have to be like this. And then the response is, so what does it look like? And I think that there is a, a history that a lot of us have where um, I had a teacher once that said that um, if you grow up in certain spaces where you're told that the power of Christ's death, the power of that blood is because of the death. But he said that the, the power of what happened is because of the life. And that is always what we go to, but it's so easy because if you focus on the death, you're never worried about what's happening right now. You never have the opportunity to say, it doesn't have to be like this because you never open your eyes to how it is. And so I think that I felt challenged to say, maybe just a small way that I can change here tonight um, is to stop having my eyes closed but to say like, it doesn't have to be this way. And that means I have to open my eyes. And sometimes that might mean that things hurt me because I see other people hurt. But then the gift and the responsibility and the power that I have is then I say, so what does it look like? Christ, show me what it's supposed to look like. And I believe that that's the invitation that all of us are given together in a community. And that's the invitation that we have here tonight. And I love too what you talked about, like the you know, kind of like the, um, down in the muck, like what was the, what were those seven days like for Christ, those last? And there was so much of the everyday life that we forget about. And one of those things is just like sharing a meal, eating, resting, being with friends. And tonight we come and we share that meal together. Uh, the meal that Jesus shared with his friends, his closest followers, um, the people that as you were talking, I was like, what were the disciples thinking? as they were watching Jesus in the temple, um, were they able to say, it doesn't have to be like this? Did they open their eyes? And so as we come tonight and we share this meal, I pray that our eyes are open too. And so we celebrate that meal, remembering that that night that Jesus took the bread and he thanked God and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, remember me. And then he took the cup and he thanked God and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we'll have the opportunity tonight to come forward and you'll take a piece of the bread, piece of the body, and then you'll dip it into the cup and then you'll eat it. And I hope that for all of us, we'll be given new eyes tonight to see doesn't have to be this way so what is it going to look like and we get the opportunity to partner with God and what the world can look like and it I think too that sometimes that can be daunting but I find it so hope-filled and and exciting so I hope that that's what we do tonight um, will you stand as we pray the prayer that Christ taught us saying our God who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
There's this theologian that I follow. I think I've told you guys this quote before, but his name's Alan Bosak. He's a South African. And he had this dream one night where he got to the pearly gates. God was there waiting for him. And God said, All right, Alan, where's the scars? Where's the pain? Show me what hurts the most. And Alan said, I looked over my body, and there was no gaping wounds. There was no problems to be found. And so I turned to God and I said, I think I'm good. I don't seem to have any major problems. I don't seem to have any battle scars. And then he said that he saw God start to weep. And God looked up at him and said, Alan, was there nothing worth fighting for? (laughs) Go home with that question tonight. Friends, no matter who you are, or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you have stayed. Please know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you, right now, as is, you are a beloved and celebrated child of God. And you belong here. We'll see you next Sunday. Go in peace. You are loved, friends.